Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. Uh, Emmanuel, it's impossible to express what a privilege and pleasure it is to worship with you this morning. My wife and I are a snotty mess this morning on the front row. Uh, we're just filled with tears and admiration for this congregation. I give you greetings this morning from Mount Vernon Baptist Church, where the Lord in His providence has called me as a pastor. But I want you to know that you saints here are always in our hearts, uh, always in our prayers, always in our mind, and we love you. Uh, This morning, I have the privilege of preaching on the mercy of God. The mercy of God from Isaiah 55, we've been reflecting on this in the songs that have been chosen, and the creeds that have been confessed, and now we're going to see it from God's Word. It's my prayer that if you're not a Christian here, that you would find the mercy of God to be sweet this morning and compelling, and that you would know it it is extended to you in Christ. And if you are a Christian this morning, especially if you're one of the members here at Emmanuel Church, I want you to be reminded afresh of God's mercy to you in Christ. That's always accessible, accessible to you, that is always extended to you. So listen now as I read from Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 9. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen to me diligently and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that He may have compassion on him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let us pray once more. Father, we ask again that in this hour, through your word, through your spirit, you would penetrate our hearts. Would you be pleased to exalt Christ and humble sinners and lead us to holiness? We ask all of this through Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. Amen. In 1802, the romantic poet William Wordsworth, he wrote the sonnet titled, The World is Too Much With Us. And like many of Wordsworth's poems, the author laments the material decadence of his time, and he longs for something outside of himself. He sees discontinuity between the plight of man and the beauty and harmony of nature. Listen to what he writes, he says, This sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours, 
and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. Wordsworth is left utterly unsatisfied with the human race as he pines for something transcendent. And while Wordsworth, in his poem, he offers nothing by way of meaningful solutions, I do think he properly diagnoses something of the problem of mankind. First, he knows something is deeply wrong with humanity. Something is out of tune, he writes. Something is out of step. Something is off kilter. There's something that's just not out how it should be. And second, and I could be reading this into Wordsworth, but I don't think I am, he seems to imply that there must be something other than mankind that is good because it is not mankind. There must be something outside of himself that's good because he recognizes that there's something within himself that is not good. And I think this unrest in Wordsworth's poetry represents something universal in human experience. Namely, we all recognize that there's something disordered in us. We all recognize that there's something wrong with us. Call it evil, call it sin, call it frailty or weakness or brokenness. Something is all wrong and something's got to give. And more than this, we only know that something's wrong because there's something that must be right. There's something or someone that must be right. We know we are disordered because there must be something outside of us that is ordered. And friends, as Christians, we know that our DNA, it is hardlined to recognize that there is a good God. And there is a good God precisely because He is high above us. He is transcendent and He is indeed not like us. And in light of this, I want us to appreciate the sheer wonder of the gospel this morning. Because this God that we worship, that we have gathered this morning to worship, is a transcendent God who is not like us. And this same God who is not like us makes himself accessible to us in Christ. This morning, as we read, we're in Isaiah 55. And uh, the book of Isaiah is the words of the prophet Isaiah, the Lord's prophet, to the people of Judah. And ordinarily, were I to preach from somewhere in Isaiah, I would feel the need to give you something of the context, something of where we are in the narrative and flow of Isaiah. But that said, chapter 55 of Isaiah is, is one of those chapters that can stand on its own two legs with little commentary from the surrounding chapters. What is this chapter? What is this text that we read a moment ago? Well, brothers and sisters, Isaiah 55 fundamentally is an invitation to sinful people to be reconciled to the living God. It's a call. It is a summons. It is an invitation and this morning, I'm going to be expounding verses 1 through 9, and I'm going to be expounding them under just two headings. Heading 1, the character of God, and heading 2, the invitation of God. The character and the invitation of God. Consider first with me, heading 1, the character of God. And to expound the character of God from this text, I want us to focus first on verses 8 and 9. Those were the last verses we read in this reading, verses 8 through 9. And the reason why I want us to do that is because, as I said, Isaiah 55 is the summons. It's this invitation to sinners to come to him. It's the sincere call of the Lord for, unre or for sinners to repent of their sins and come to the Lord in faith. But that invitation, it's found firmly on the bedrock of God's character that we see in verses 8 through 9. The Lord is only able to make this call to sinners because of who he is, because of his character. No character, no call. 
unless there are certain fundamental realities of God's person that are true, he cannot issue this invitation to sinful people. So it's worthwhile for us to consider, who is this God? Who is this God that makes this great call? Without certain peculiar attributes of God, there can be no summons for sinners to come. And I know this because when the Lord goes to speak about his character in verses 8 and 9, we see the word for. Look at verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. What's that word for doing? It's a preposition. It links the verses that come before. It's a preposition which precedes a truth that grounds the verses that come before. Let's look at these verses. Verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What do we learn about the character of God from these verses? What do we learn about who He is? Well, fundamentally, we learn really one thing. It's God, in Isaiah 55, He's not like us. This God is not like us. The Lord, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, wants you to know that He's not like you. Well, how is He not like us? Well, we can quite easily supplement how God is unlike us from a variety of places in Scripture. I want to highlight three things, three ways God is not like us. First, we're told in God's Word that He is holy and we are sinners. Although that God, the God who is unlike us, He is holy and we are sinners. For God to be holy means many things, but it's not less than the fact that He is set apart from all evil. He is pure. 1 John 1 says God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is holy. He is separate from evil. What does the God's Word say about us? Listen to this indictment from Psalm 53. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. Friends, we all number among who this text describes as the children of man. Outside of Christ, we are corrupt. Outside of Christ, we can do no good. Outside of Christ, we cannot seek after God. How is God unlike us? He is holy. And we are guilty. We are sinners. How else are we unlike God? We're told from God's word that he is just. This is similar to the last point. He is just and righteous and we are guilty. Romans 3 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think most of us on some level are, can grapple with that to some degree. We, we recognize that we're imperfect. And if we believe in God, we can say, God, yeah, God's perfect, and I'm less than that. I'm not perfect. We're pressed. We tend to think, surely this God, this God who is love, as the Bible tells us, surely he can cover our sins with his love. Surely he can ignore my sin. Surely he can wink and nod and not have to do anything about my sin. But friend, to think that way is to utterly miss the mark. It is to utterly miss the idea that the Bible presents of what sin is. Listen to how J.C. Ryle 
defines sin in his book, Holiness. Ryle says, I say, therefore, that a sin, to speak more particularly, consists in doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. Sin, in short, as the scripture says, is the transgression of the law. The slightest outward or inward departure from absolute mathematical parallelism with God's revealed will and character constitutes a sin. And at once makes us guilty in God's sight. Isaiah 55 tells us that God is not like us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And His exacting character cannot dismiss our wrongdoing. The God who is cannot ignore sin. He is righteous and we are guilty. How else is God unlike us? Well, thirdly, we're told that in God's word that He is mighty and we are frail. We're told in His word that He is mighty and we, we are frail. He's sovereign. He's, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows all things. We're told that the Almighty God formed you in your mother's womb. My friend, your life is laid bare before Him. He is aware of the most sinister passions of your heart. He knows. He knows the most twisted impulses of your flesh. And He's acquainted with every evil thing to originate in your mind, even that which you've only ever imagined. Friend, He knows what you are. He knows where you've been. He knows what you've seen. He knows what you are. And in Isaiah 55, he says, hey, you and me, we're not the same. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Friend, what would you expect from a God so unlike us? How would you expect this God who is transcendent, this God who is unlike us to deal with us? What could we expect from a God so holy? What could we expect from a God so just, so righteous? What could we expect from a God so powerful? Surely the withering standard of God could only hold me into account. Surely the exacting character of God could only consume us. Yet it's here where we learn that this God who is unlike us, indeed because He is unlike us, He welcomes us. He invites sinners like you and me to come to Him. He summons us to repent from our sins and in Christ find forgiveness. The God who is unlike us calls sinners to come to Him. We've considered the character of God. Consider, secondly, the invitation of God. Brothers and sisters, it's just, we just have to appreciate that this text in Isaiah presents God as He is. This is the heart of the Lord laid bare before us. You want to know what the Lord is like. You want to know what Jesus is like. Read Isaiah 55. This summons is His beating heart on display for His people. This is God as He is to sinners who come to Him. Charles Simeon, commenting on this text, says no words could be devised that could more forcibly declare God's desire for our welfare. The Lord is one who is in deadly earnest for sinners to come to Him. Christian, in case you've forgotten, God loves to extend mercy. God loves to forgive sins in His Son. Jesus tells us as much in Luke 15. He says, just so I tell you, 
There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God's default posture is one of invitation. It's one that invites sinners to come to him. And what we find in verses 1 through 7 are these invitations, these summons, these promises, and these blessings that flow to those who come to the Lord. And it's here where I just have to make a tremendous caveat. Like, if I had a flare gun, I would shoot it off right now. Because the blessings, what we must understand is these blessings, they do not extend to all people generally. The blessings we're about to read about in verses 1 through 7, they don't extend to all people. The call goes to everyone. The summons is to everyone, and it is with sincerity. But the blessings to be experienced from this passage only come to those who come to the Lord in faith. Who come to Him to cling to Jesus with all that they are. The Lord lavishes His love, His saving mercy only on those who have faith. And I emphasize faith because what we have in this text is the Lord giving four pictures or aspects or metaphors of what it means to exercise faith. He calls sinners in the form of four invitations. Consider invitation one. The first invitation is come and be satisfied. The first invitation is for sinners to come and be satisfied. Look at verse one. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. God invites people to come to him and experience satisfaction. And this should sound very familiar to us because it's nearly exactly what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 11. What does he say? He says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord in Isaiah 55 and Jesus throughout the New Testament, he reserves rest for people who come to him. But remember, it's only for those who come to him. It's only for those who exercise faith in him. There simply are many people who think that because Jesus is ready to receive sinners, because Jesus forgives sinners, that he will forgive all sinners because of who he is. That readiness means execution to every single person unequivocally. That is not what the Bible teaches. To think so is to completely misunderstand the gospel. Christian people are saved through faith in Christ. That is what it means to come to him. Faith is the appointed means by which we have fellowship with God. Like, imagine this. Imagine if I were to tell you, hey, everybody who wants to come over to, we'll say Nathan and Kelly Streer's house tonight, you will get a five-course meal. Kelly, don't get worried. But if, if I said, hey, everybody who wants to come to the Streer's house tonight, you will get a five-course meal. You know, that sounds wonderful. What generous people. And then you go home this afternoon and you take a nap. And you stay home tonight and you wake up the next morning and you wonder, where was my meal? Where was this wonderful five-course meal? I was promised. I was assured of this. What's your problem? Is the issue that the invitation wasn't sincere? Or that you didn't come into the house? 
You didn't enter in. You didn't follow the instructions. You didn't utilize the appointed means of getting that meal. It's an imperfect illustration, but that is something of what faith is. These blessings that the Lord extends in Isaiah 55 are for those who come to him. Not everyone will be satisfied. But those who come to the Lord, repent of their sins, they will. Jesus reserves rest for those who come. The Lord reserves satisfaction for those to come. Our Lord Jesus, he stands ready to give bread to the hungry, water to the thirsty, money to beggars. And he offers salvation, but only to those who apply to him in faith. And faith, as you heard this morning in Rex's class, and I know you've heard many times in this, in, the, in this room, faith is wholesale reliance on Jesus. It's where you as a sinner recognize who you are in light of God's character, in light of God's standard, and you cling and you throw yourselves on the merits of Christ. Like all that He is, all that He has done, all that I'm not. Faith is where you realize I have no hope in life and death except Jesus who came into the world to save sinners who lived a perfect life, who died on a Roman cross, who was raised for my justification. That is faith, is when you rely on Jesus. And that is what it means to come to him. That is what it means to seek him. That is what it means to have faith. And in our text, the Lord is quite aware that people so often prefer alternatives. They prefer alternatives to himself. It says in verse 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. If you're not a Christian here, I'm so happy you're here. And you should know that you're a friend to the people in this room. And we so want you to come to faith. But I just have to ask you, what bread have you been eating? What have you been in your life looking to for satisfaction? Is it success? Is it some relational fulfillment, sex, or emotional stability? Is it success in your career? Is it some sort of accolade, some sort of prestige? What bread have you been eating? I ask you, how does that bread satisfy? Will it satisfy you when you tread through the valley of the shadow of death? Will it satisfy you in the dark night of your soul? Friend, things may be going well for you now, but I assure you one day you will need money that has purchasing power. You'll need currency that's worth something. You'll need bread that can fill you up, and you'll need water that can satisfy you. And I assure you, it only comes through Christ. You can come to Him today. God calls sinners to come and be satisfied. Secondly, in this text, He calls on sinners to listen and to live. To listen and live. Look at verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified, He has glorified you. Here the Lord makes reference to the covenant that He made with David in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, and if you can, turn to Isaiah 9. Turn to Isaiah 9, keeping your place in Isaiah 55. And as you turn there, 
I'll read to you from 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, David, King David, he's feeling rather pious, and he notices, hey, I live in this nice, this nice house, this nice palace. The Lord is still meeting in a tabernacle. I want to build the Lord a temple. Nathan, can I build the Lord a temple? He asked the prophet Nathan. And then Nathan, he addresses him, uh, or rather the Lord addresses David through Nathan, and he says this. He says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The Lord says to David in this covenant, hey, you want to build me a house? You want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. Essentially, the covenant with David looked forward to great David's greater son, who would rule with justice, and he would rule with might and with peace and with equity. And then look at what Isaiah says in chapter 9, in verses 6 and 7. This is a verse we often read around Christmas time. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom forever, or over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then in our text, Isaiah 55, verse 4, Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commanders to the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you. We see that to all the peoples, David's great son, his greater son, will be a great magnet. A magnet through which all true children of God will come to him and form a new humanity. And this comes with a summons in verse 3 to incline your ear and to listen and to hear that your soul may live. How do we participate in this new humanity? How can I belong to this new humanity? How can I belong to this people? How might I be counted among this new nation governed by this sovereign, gracious hand of this almighty king? We must listen. We must hear that our soul may live. And we know that on this side of the cross that faith comes through hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. How can I participate in this new humanity? How can I belong to this people? I need to listen. Just to have faith. I need to respond to the Lord in the gospel. God invites sinners to listen and to live. Invitation one, he calls them to come and be satisfied. Invitation two is to listen and to live. And then invitation three, to seek and find. The Lord calls Sinners to seek and to find. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Friends, I just don't want this to be lost on us. This same transcendent Lord, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, whose ways are higher than our ways, this God who is unlike us, he can say to sinners with integrity and sincerity, he is near. He's near to those who come to him in faith. Psalm 145, verse 8 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, 
to all who call on Him in truth. Yeah, as we have this sweet promise, we still have the other side. We have this warning. Because not only is He near to those who seek Him, those who seek Him find Him, but it's implied in this text that He will not always be found. Can you appreciate that? Seek Him while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. That word while limits the promise. You get that? The word while, it, it, it limits what he's promised, the blessing. The offer of the gospel comes with an expiration date. My friend, if you are lost, there will come a time when the Lord will no longer be found. We can say with blazing certainty that he is near to us now, but he will not always be near. If you're outside of Christ, there will come a time where you will seek him to no avail. My friend, you must be aware of the frailty of life. I have numbers in my phone of people that if I called them, they won't answer because they've plunged on into eternity. And I tell you, those people are now gone. Death came to them unexpectedly. You're just not promised tomorrow. You're not promised your next breath. You're not promised your next heartbeat, but you are promised this, that if you're within the sound of my voice, you can have faith today. You can have the blessings of all the promises in this text. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He is near. He's near. He can be heard. He can hear you. And he assumes the role in our text as a herald, calling out to everyone who will hear, I'm here. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. I got food for the hungry. I got water for the thirsty. I got money for the beggar. I got life for the dying. The Lord is near. And you can become a Christian today sitting in that pew. If you call upon the name of the Lord, trust in Christ for salvation, that his sacrifice paid the price for your sins, and you'll have life. Emmanuel, the reality of this call, I want to say this by way of application. The reality that the Lord will not always be found should give us urgency in our evangelism. It should give us urgency for sinners. I believe there's something to a word in due season. There is wisdom in discerning the best times to share Christ with the lost people in our lives. But brothers and sisters, eventually you have to go, you have to explain the gospel in words. Faith comes through hearing it comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Christian, are you sharing the gospel with the people in your life? Have you considered that maybe the reason you've been placed in that family to those parents or with those siblings or with those children, perhaps the reason you've been placed at that cubicle or you've moved to that neighborhood is so that you could bear witness to the mercy of God, that you could share Christ with the lost people in your life. They're going to need to hear it. The only way that they can be saved is if they hear the gospel with clarity. We cannot be indifferent to the lostness around us. Now, I, I would add, let us learn to appreciate something of the Lord's heart here for sinners. And let us wonder, what would happen if Emmanuel Church could approximate something of the warm heart of the Lord towards lost people? If we could mirror something of the heart of Christ that constantly throughout the Gospels, He's calling on sinners to come to Him. Like nothing gives Him more pleasure than to forgive sinners 
who have faith. When was the last time you sat across a non-Christian in your life and just said, hey, I love you. I love you. Perhaps we've had our differences, but I need you to know I love you. And I don't want you to perish. Hell is real, and it's coming, and the Lord is returning, and I want you on that great day to stand complete in Him. The Lord pleads for sinners. Pleading is not just for preachers, it's for every Christian. We're to bring the nation, to bring the gospel to our neighbors. The Lord calls people to come and be satisfied. He calls on them to listen and to live. He calls on them to seek and to find. And then lastly, invitation four. He calls on them to repent and be forgiven. Repent and be forgiven. Verse seven. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Here God calls on people to repent. And Christian, can you appreciate who qualifies for this call? Who qualifies for this summons? Isaiah says the wicked. Isaiah says the unrepentant one. That wicked one whose God's ways are not like. That unrepentant one whose thoughts, God's thoughts are higher than. God calls the unrighteous to himself. As one hymn says, not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners Jesus came to call. Or as another hymn says, let not conscience make you linger. Nor for fitness, for fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need for him. What qualifies? Who qualifies for this offer? It's for sinners. It's for those who see themselves as hopeless outside of Christ. Those who see themselves with nothing in their hands to bring to the Lord. It is the unrighteous. It is the wicked that qualify for this offer. He calls the wicked to forsake his way. That way which God is higher than. The unrighteous to forsake his thoughts. Those thoughts which God's thoughts are higher than. And his promise is to show compassion to those who turn to him. He will abundantly pardon their sins. Can you just see the great, the great chasm that comes between God and sinners does not prevent God from showing great mercy. His expansive, steadfast love reaches all repentant people. Those who turn from Christ, turn to Jesus from their sins, find forgiveness. And I just know in a room this size, there are some of you that will be thinking, this is just too good to be true. That this holy God, that this just God, that this mighty God, this God who's unlike me could actually forgive all that I've done. All that I've done in my life, all that I've done today, all that I've done this week, this is too good to be true. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are high. This is too good to be true. This God who's unlike me, and the Lord is telling in this text, yes. Yes, I am unlike you. Yes, I'm not at all like you. I'm not like those other gods. Yes, my ways are higher than your ways. Yes, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Yes, I am unlike you. But I can forgive sins. I can forgive sins because I can do something about your sin. 
You see, I've sent my son. I've sent my son into the world because I love the world so much. That whoever turns to him, whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. I've done something about your sin, you see. I've done something about your sin in Christ, my holy son, who satisfied the payment of, my, of your sin on the cross. And because of this, I welcome you. I welcome you to come to me. Brothers and sisters, let us marvel at the unspeakable mercy of God. Let us marvel at the unspeakable mercy of God to us in Christ. I want to close with three applications from this text. Three applications, and this is to the people at Emmanuel Church. First, brothers and sisters, let us model the character of God in forgiveness. Let us model the character of God in forgiveness. We've seen in Isaiah 55 how oriented God is to forgive sinners. We've seen, we've pondered the incalculable distance between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. That God is ready to receive forgiveness ready to receive and forgive all those who come to him through Christ. Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying is this truth should produce an impulse of readiness to forgive anyone who ever wrongs us. This truth of God's mercy extended to you in Christ, this truth of God's mercy should produce within you, it should originate within you, an impulse to forgive everyone who ever wrongs you. From time to time, I'll hear Christians say, I struggle with forgiveness. Like, I don't know how I'm ever going to be able to forgive her. Or, yeah, he's asked for forgiveness, but the wound is just so deep. I don't know how I'm ever going to be able to forgive him. Friend, I must warn you in no uncertain terms. Withholding forgiveness is not an option for a Christian. Withholding forgiveness is not an option for Christians. We're not always called to fully restore relationships and trust with those who wrong us. That's true. But an unforgiving heart is grievous to the Lord. Reluctance to extend forgiveness is the most flagrant evidence that you misunderstand the gospel. Friend, I encourage you, read the gospels. The Lord reserved his most harshest words for the unforgiving. Do you realize when we pray the Lord's prayer, what we're praying? What do we say at the end of the Lord's Prayer? We say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Do you know what you're saying when you say that? You're saying, Lord, I expect you to forgive me in the same way I so readily forgive all those who wrong me. And why can we say that with such confidence? Because there's a correlation there. Forgiven people forgive. What can I hold against another man? What can I hold against my wife? What can I hold against my parents? What can I hold against anyone? I know what I've done to the Lord. And I know what he has freely pardoned. And out of the increase of that forgiveness, I readily forgive others. Brothers and sisters, unforgiveness is not an option for Christians. Let us model the character of God and our forgiveness of others. He has shown nothing but grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy to us. Let us do the same.
Application two, let mercy, friends, move us to live lives of repentance and obedience. Let the mercy we see on display in this text move us and motivate us to lives of repentance and obedience. Great mercy of God to redeem saints should compel our most sincere devotion and service to God. And now listen to me very carefully. When God saves a Christian, when a person passes from death into life, when he passes from the dominion of darkness and is transferred into the kingdom of God's light, when that happens, when a person is converted and they're Christian and they want to follow Jesus, they don't do so They don't live the Christian life to the tune of some sort of debtor's ethic. Like you don't enroll in some sort of repayment program. That is not what a Christian does. Jesus has paid the price for our sins, amen? On the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. It was satisfied. We can never repay what we owe to the Lord in our sin. We can't satisfy God's wrath. Christ said on the cross, it is finished. Now, the burden in the Christian life is to live a life of repentance, to live a life of holiness, to live a life of day-by-day growth in Christ that springs out of gratitude. It springs out of response to God's grace in our lives. It springs out of gratitude that we repent of our sins daily. It springs out of gratitude that we rise forth in obedience. It springs out of gratitude that I kill my sin and I vivify new affections for Christ. It's all gratitude for what God has done for me. You don't pay the Lord back. You can't do it. Your sin has already been paid for. You remember the woman in Luke 7? In Luke 7, Jesus, he has a meal meal with Simon the Pharisee. Simon invites uh, invites Jesus to his house. Jesus is reclining at table with Simon. And then a notorious sinful woman intrudes upon the gathering. She intrudes upon the woman. She she may have been a a prostitute, but she she was a notorious sinner. She intrudes upon the gathering. She falls at the Lord's feet and she begins weeping. Just weeping. River of tears falling out of her head onto the Lord's feet. She washes his feet with ointment, her tears, and her hair. And Simon is just incensed. If this Jesus is a Christ, surely he knows who this woman is. Do you remember how Jesus responded to Simon? He tells him a parable about some debtors, and then he says this. He says, you gave me no kiss, Simon, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Those tears that flowed from that woman's face, they were not earning her salvation. They were demonstrating a vital connection to the Lord in faith. Her tearful devotion to Jesus was born out of a living attachment to the Lord in faith. And by so deeply sensing the forgiveness of her sins, she could follow Jesus with abandon. Christian, perhaps you know that you have a holiness problem. Perhaps you feel, I'm just not growing in holiness the way I should. And not like you know that you're imperfect, but like you really sense, like I should be growing more in faith. I should be growing more in godliness. I I shouldn't be still struggling with this sin. My friend, let me suggest to you 
Let me suggest that you consider that your holiness problem might be because you have not comprehended the gravity of your sin. And you have not been undone by God's mercy. And you don't see the great depths of your sin in comparison to the holiness of God. Because I assure you, the holiest people in the world are those who grow daily in hatred for sin. They're the same saints that are undone by God's unspeakable mercy. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, let mercy, God's mercy, motivate you to higher heights of holiness. Let God's character and saving action move us to live lives of repentance and obedience. My last application, I want to close with a word of comfort. A comfort to those of us here that are sick and sore from the weight of our remaining sin. Like if you're a Christian here and you're just weighed daily, moment by moment, by the ways you fail the Lord, by the ways you sin. If you're a Christian, the invitation to come to the Lord that we see in Isaiah 55 is just as much for you as it is for a non-Christian. The invitation to come to the Lord, to be restored to the Lord, it is just as much for you as it is for an unbeliever. We never outgrow coming to Jesus. We, ever, we never grow, outgrow approaching Him with our sin. Come to Jesus with your sin. We never outgrow coming to the Lord through Christ again and again and again and again for fresh mercy. We will never experience in the Christian life complete removal of sin. But we should feel at all times to the core of our being that we can always approach the Lord. That we can always run to Christ and He will receive us. We're just so often prone to project our own character and our own ways onto God when He so expressly, so clearly conveys who He is to us. Christian, what do you think God is like when you sin against Him? What do you think God is like when you fail Him? What do you think the Spirit is like when you grieve the Spirit? What do you think God is like when you disobey Him? You think He's just a furrowed brow? I'll try you on a little longer. I'll keep you at an arm's length. Yeah, I'll, we'll, we'll still call you my son. No, He's ready. He invites us to come to Him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to just and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, what do you think Jesus is like when you sin against him? He says, come to me. Come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And those who come to me, I will never cast out. Christian, I assure you, Jesus is a friend of sinners. And he stands ready to receive you always. Always in faith in him. He stands ready to receive you as a first impulse of saving faith. And he stands ready to receive you as a daily matter of Christian discipleship. The God who is unlike us, brothers and sisters, abundantly pardons those who are united to his son. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything you are to us in Christ. 
we thank you for the blessed invitation. The free offer of forgiveness to all those who repent. We ask, Lord, please give us greater appreciation and sense of your great mercy to us. And would you be pleased to mold us by your mercy? May we be a forgiving, a holy and repentant people. We ask all of this, Lord, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.